Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you in prayer this morning. And Lord, I pray that our songs of praise to thee would be acceptable and would be a blessing to you, Lord. Help us to remember that we're not singing these songs for ourselves. We're singing these songs for your honor and for your glory. And Lord, that each of us would endeavor to give our best to sing a song, an offering of praise to the Creator God. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would use it during the time of preaching to minister it to our hearts and lives. Lord, we're needy people, and we need you to change us so that we can serve you through this coming week. We pray for this special music, the offering that will be taken at the end of the service. Each thing will be done in worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please remain standing for the next song. Take your Bibles and turn to probably what is the most well-known verse in all the Bible, John chapter 3 and verse 16. John chapter 3 and verse 16, and I would like us just to spend our time this morning looking at this one verse. Of course, we will look at other passages of Scripture to help us understand the words of this verse um, years ago, I'm not sure if they still do it. Uh, we were passing out tracks, and and uh, they looked at the track and said, "Oh, so this is what John 3:16 means." And I said, "What? What do you mean?" I said, "Well, anytime I watch a ball game or something, somebody in the stands has a banner that says John 3:16. I I had no idea uh, what what that meant, and." Um, And so I took some time to explain to them this verse. And uh, just going to ask you uh, this morning, if you would, to uh, stand with me. And let's just read this verse out loud together all at the same time. We'll read it slowly, so follow with me. And let's let's read it uh, as unto the Lord. Here we go. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And all God's people said, You may be seated. If you like titles to the message, the title is very simply, For God. My pastor, Roy Thompson, once took a whole year, 52 sermons, and his only text was John 3.16. I'm not going to endeavor to try to do that. We'll try to get through the whole whole verse in, in one sermon this morning. But I just said that so that you can know there is much, much more in this one simple verse than we could cover if we were to spend a whole year. Just going through this verse, I mean, the first word in there is one of those neglected words in the English language. The little word for. F-O-R. For. What does that word mean? It always gets quiet. Uh, Well, it it means for. Uh, Yeah, I I mean, it's... Right, right there. It, it can. It, and by the way, uh, I looked it up in my Oxford English Dictionary, and there's about uh, 18 primary definitions, different usages for the word "for," and about a dozen or more other secondary uses for the word "for." Uh, it's one of those little words that's been around as long as the English language has been around. Back in Beowulf in the 1100s, 12th century, the word for was there. And in, in our passage today, it says, for God. So it's telling us, Not that something was done to or for God, but that God is the originator of the action. So what is the connection? 
And if you're around our church very long, you're going to hear me say this over and over and over again, and I hope you never get tired of hearing it. The Bible explains the Bible. You want a commentary on the Bible, read your Bible. You say, well, I'm not sure what those words mean. Well, I'll tell you what, you need one book. It's called Strong's Exhaustive Concordance. Now, it's called Exhaustive because it'll wear you out carrying it around. It's a big book. Uh, No, actually, it's called Exhaustive because every word in your Bible, everywhere it is found, is listed. And you can look up the words and you can follow them through the Scriptures. And guess what? The Bible is its own best dictionary. It will explain it. And as we know, there are words that have more than one usage or more than one definition. So how do we determine that? Well, it's very simple. You'll see different Scripture references if you'll just look at them all. And they'll fall into separate categories all by themselves. Because you'll soon recognize that they're talking about the same thing. And it won't be long before you have a complete dictionary on every word that's in your Bible. Now, you can take the cheater's way out. In the bookstore, we have a $5 dictionary. It has all the hard words in your King James Bible. And if we don't have them... Uh, We'll order some more. If you don't have the $5, we'll give you one. Because we want you to understand the Bible. But this little word for here is talking about the reason for. The reason or the place where the action originates. Or why God is doing this. So let's go back in our scriptures. We just read verse 16. Let's go back to verse 12. It says, if I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. How many of you caught that? See, we have a tendency just to read through our scriptures and miss things. Jesus said... He's talking to Nicodemus, chapter, chapter 3. He said, listen, I've told you of earthly things. I told you that the spiritual birth is just like the physical birth. Only it's spiritual, not physical. And we have a little track that we pass out that's based right on that passage. Uh, when a person is born physically, guess what? You're born into a family, Amen. When you're born spiritually, that's how you get into God's family. By the way, when you were born, how many mothers do we have here? Uh, If you're a mother, raise your hand. When your child was born, who did all the work? You did. There has never been a baby that has given its mother assistance. In fact, the only thing that baby has done is create more problems. I mean, that's what they do. Uh, Sometimes the little babies can make it very difficult to give birth. Uh, Other times, they don't do anything and it all just happens. And that's, that's wonderful. And yet, 99% of religion is built on you assisting God in giving you birth. It doesn't match up with Jesus' explanation at all, my friend. Jesus' explanation was, just like your mother did all the work in giving you life, so God must do all the work in giving you spiritual life. Jesus said that you have to be born of water and of the Spirit. And all the churches, oh, they jump on that. Hey, we, we like water baptism. You know, it takes more water to make a Baptist than any other ten denominations connected. And we make a less deal of it because the water that's spoken of there is explained in the next verse. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. What's the last, one of the last things that happens before the baby's born? 
the water breaks. Do you think Jesus understood that when he said that which is born, a man must be born of water and of the Spirit? I believe he did because the next verse he simply says, you've got to be born of flesh, water, and Spirit stays Spirit. So we look here and Jesus said, listen, I'm speaking to you of earthly things that you understand very well and you can't make the connection to the spiritual things. He says, now I'm going to explain to you why you can't. Because there's only one that has ever been to heaven and to earth. And that's the Son of Man who is standing right in front of you and in heaven at the same time. Isn't that what it says in your King James Bible? It says, no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Present tense. Jesus was explaining that he is the omnipresent, if you like big words, everywhere existent God. You cannot hide from Him. You cannot go where He is not. He is in earth. He is in heaven. Now, verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have ever have eternal life for God. So, verse 12 ties us in with spiritual things. Verse 13 explains us that Jesus is the only one that has the knowledge to speak of these things. Verse 14 gives us an Old Testament illustration, a living example of, of what Jesus is talking about. How many of you know the story of Numbers chapter 21 in the fiery serpents? Would you just raise your hand? Uh, that's why we have our Sunday school time. We go through the Bible, and, and, and as I looked out, this is nothing to be embarrassed about, but some people didn't raise their hand. They don't know the story. But I'll tell you what, if you show up Sunday school for about two and a half, three years, you'll get every story in the Bible. We just started the New Testament. We're on story number two, and uh, we've got about... A year to go to get through the New Testament. Most of it's the life of Christ. Then we get into the book of Acts. And then you know where we're going? Right back to Genesis chapter 1. Amen. And we'll keep going through the Bible by God's grace. In our, we call it through the Bible time until Jesus comes back. But let's take a moment and go to Numbers chapter 21. It's not a long story. The children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness. The reason they were doing that was because they had disobeyed God when God had said, enter the promised land. And so God said, since you disobeyed me, you'll spend 40 years, one for each day, that you uh, toured the promised land and then disobeyed me until all that generation has died. You do the math. There were 600,000 men that were counted in the army. I think it works out to somewhere, and I haven't done it in a long time, so forgive me. Uh, somebody wants to do the math. But it works out to, uh, you take in uh, uh, wives uh, of these men. It works out to over 100 funerals every day for 40 years. We're now at the very end of that time. And God sends them around the land of Edom because the king of Edom will not let them use the highway that goes through his land. And they murmur and they complain. And we get here to verse 6 and it says, God and the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. 
Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it up on a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. End of story. Just that simple. Does that make any sense? Somebody said, were the serpents made out of fire? No. He told Moses to make one, and Moses made it out of brass. So that tells us that the fiery part was the color. And by the way, there still lives today a very poisonous snake in that part of the world that is the color of brass. And when it bites you, they tell us that it just makes your whole body feel like it's on fire for just a few moments, and then you're dead. Uh, a very, very venomous snake. The fact that they were all there at that point was the hand of God. And Moses made one that looked like that, and so he chose brass, he put it on a pole, and he stuck it up in the middle of the camp, and it says, whoever looked at that brazen serpent would not die from the poison of the bite. Now that in itself is miraculous. doesn't make a bit of sense. But that is what God said, and that's what they did. And the people that had enough faith, faith is listening to the Word of God to the point you obey it. The people that had enough faith to look at the brazen serpent, the serpent of brass on the pole lived. Those that said, that's silly, that doesn't make a bit of sense, it'll never work, they died. And Jesus said, just like the serpent in the wilderness. Does it make sense that Jesus, the Son of God, should die on a cross nearly 2,000 years ago? Yet, I'll challenge you, roughly, if we understand the Bible chronology correctly, about 4,000 years after Adam and Eve sinned, Jesus died on the cross and it paid the price for all sin, for all men, for all time. Jesus was using this example to try to help us understand something. That it doesn't have to make sense to you for God to use it. That if God says so, that's good enough in and of itself. You see, that is the for God. It says in verse 15, specifically of chapter 3, it says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It doesn't need to make sense to you. It doesn't need to work work in your mind, what it does is it works in God's, and that's all that really matters. And that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And this is the reason. This is the purpose. Here's what's happening for God. But what motivated God? Well, the next two words tells us. For God so loved. What did he love? The object? The world. Does that mean God loved the trees and the rivers and the rocks and the hills? Well, read Genesis chapters 1 and 2. He said they were all good. But... I think you need a little more sense than that to understand that God's not talking about trees and rocks and rills and creations and the beautiful things that are out there and all the fishes and the fuzzy little animals and the great big mean ones. God loves all of that, but He doesn't love them. 
like he loves mankind who is created in his image. You know, we live in a world where people always want to qualify everything. I always laugh. I'll get an email. You've got 12 stars on your Starbucks card. You get a free drink. And you sit there, ah, free? Stupid. It's not free. You've been paying for it all along. They're still making money. Check the New York Stock Exchange. They're not going broke. Uh, they're making money. They can give you, give you that cup of coffee because of the money you spent on the other. Nothing here is free, my friend. But God so loved the world that He gave. You see, salvation does not cost you anything. But it's not free. It is a free gift to you because of God's love for you as being part of the world. Few things make me more aggravated than when someone tries to qualify God. When they say, well, we understand that God so loved the world, but we really understand that when He said He so loved the world, He was specifically referring to the elect, those that would get saved, not everybody. Uh, could I challenge you that you've got to go to school and, and you've got to be trained to be that dumb? It doesn't happen naturally. You, you have got to work on it. You, you've got to have people help you. You've got to read other books. You've got to study hard to deny what's simply in the Word of God. When it says, for God so loved the world... That's what it means. He is the Creator. We know that from Genesis chapter 1. But I'd like you to take a moment with me and turn to Romans chapter 5, if you would. And, of course, we could spend our whole morning on any one of these passages that we're going to look at. But we're just reading them to help us uh, uh, get the uh, truth, uh, what is really being said in this one verse. But in verse 6, Romans chapter 5, it says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Did you get what it said there? We have stories of men who were willing to give their lives so that other men could live. Once in a while, it'll be... Kind of a strange story, but more often than not, it will be because of some great truth, of some great freedom. The Bible says for a good man, some will even dare to die. I'd like to challenge you, the history of this nation, the United States, is full of men who gave their lives willingly. We have an all-volunteer military since the 1980s. And you know what? They die. Thousands of them have given their lives to keep the war on terror reduced to one lone gunman, as happened this week, instead of a replay of 9-11 every day, which is the dream of the terrorists. Stop and think about that. That's an incredible thing. 
And we need to honor those that serve. They deserve our prayers and our respect. But that wasn't the way God did it. You see, God died for us while we were still living in rebellion against Him. In the world of man to man, you cannot do that. Dying that your enemy could go free is being a traitor to your own side. Isn't it? Hello? But you see, God is bigger than the conflict. He can die for His enemy and not be a partaker with the enemy. Can't do that in the human realm. God has reserved that kind of love for Himself because He's the only one that can do it. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We'll start reading in verse 4. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy for His great love, wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, or made us alive together with Christ, by grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus." For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Do you see the level of God's love? It's far above anything that any person or any group of people could exercise toward another. You see... God loved the world, for God so loved the world that He gave. What did He give? His only begotten Son. You see, we have a lot of people that say, I love. But by that, what they're saying is, I want. I, I'm willing to give you if you're willing to give me. That's not love, my friend. That's a contract. That's why it's so foolish. The young man says, listen, if you'll just let me move in and live with you for a little while, uh, I promise you'll get married someday. You give up everything. He gives up nothing. And then try to get married. The number one way to prepare for divorce court is to live as if you were married before you're married. That, that is the number one way to prepare for divorce. It's, uh, the statistics are somewhere around 80%. You can't, you can't improve on the Bible. Uh, if there's a place that ignorance is bliss, it is in marriage. If you don't know how every girl in the county kisses, you'll be satisfied with the one you got. Amen? Uh, if you don't try to have what they have on the Hollywood screen, and of course this is just trying to illustrate the falseness and the foolishness and the shallowness of the love that this world offers and the things that it calls love. You see, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son while we were still living in rebellion against Him. He offered His Son to pay the price for our sins. And yet it was Jesus in his own preaching that said, Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. But wide is the gate, and broad is the way 
Isn't it amazing? Every city, nearly every city in this nation has a street called Broadway. Broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction, and many be that go in thereat. Luke chapter 13, I believe it was Jesus told uh, the, the disciples, they asked him the question, uh, Lord, is it only a few people that get saved? He said, strive, fight, pull everything you have to enter in at the straight gate. He says there's going to be many that are going to try and they won't be able to get in. Romans chapter 8 and verse 32 says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If God has already put Jesus, given his son, knowing that the majority of human beings in this earth would not accept what Jesus did for them, What won't he do for you? What wouldn't he do? It says, freely give us all things. Luke chapter 12 says, it's his joy. It's his pleasure to give us the kingdom. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's why it says in the book of Revelation that he's made us kings and priests. I'll tell you what, I'm looking so forward to when Jesus rules this earth. You know why? Because there won't be one politician doing anything on this earth. It's all going to be Jesus and his servants. And everything is going to be done his way. It will be the golden age of all of history. A thousand years, Jesus will rule and reign this earth. You see, He gave His only begotten Son. Now, some people get confused on that. But I want you to understand a few things. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1. It says, God, in verse 1, who at sundry times, that's different time, and in divers or diverse manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, and by whom also he made the world. Verse 5. For which, unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. Verse 8, But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom, Thou hast loved righteousness and hast hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Verse 11, They shall perish, but thou remainest thee, and they shall wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, thy years shall not fail. Now, I know we've skipped over verses here for the sake of time, but what this chapter is telling us is the greatest revelation of God to mankind is the person of Jesus Christ. And this idea that when God says, This day have I begotten thee, He's talking about the day that He sent Him here to earth and established Him as our Savior, even though He was just a baby in the manger. And it says when he brings his first begotten into the world, that he asks all the, he demands uh, all the angels of God to worship him. That's why the heavenly choir was there in Luke chapter 2. And when he addresses the son, 
He addresses him with words that belong only to God. He says, Thy throne, O God. They're going to fold up this universe. We're still trying to figure out how big it is. We we thought we've done something really incredible because we flew a camera by Pluto this week. Three billion miles away. Now, that's pretty cool. But our best measurement is the the universe in which we live is 13.5 billion light years across. Do you get the difference? You see, God's going to take this whole thing and fold it up as you do an old pair of jeans you can't wear anymore. He's going to throw them away. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. But Jesus is going to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, the reason why God gave His only begotten Son is because Jesus is the only one capable of doing the work that is necessary for salvation. Look with me in John chapter 10, if you would. John chapter 10. Verse 17 says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. That kind of power does not belong to any human being. Many have made the boast. In fact, uh, the founder of what is known as Scientology or the Christian Science Movement, Mary Baker. Uh, she had about eight different husbands. Uh, and uh, finally, I think she goes by Eddie, was the name that's on her books that she printed to try to explain God. She was so brazen and against everything in the Bible, that she had a working telephone buried with her in her coffin. And she said that if there is any way to contact you from beyond, I will do it. And the people that are the head of this church that she founded kept the phone line alive for 30-some years. But there was never any, any incoming calls. I'm the kind of guy I would have loved to get the number and tapped into the line and rang headquarters. The phone is wrong! But this is the phone company just seeing if the line still works. Thank you. Oh, I'd just love to do something like that. I'm sorry. That's just my imagination. Forgive me. But Miss Eddie never made any phone calls. But Jesus said, I'll lay my life down, and I'll take it back. And he did three days later, because he is God. I wish we had time to spend in Revelation chapter 5. But Jesus was chosen because he is the only one that could. He is the only one capable of laying down his life and bringing again John chapter 3 verse 13. He is the only one that has descended from heaven and yet is still in heaven all at the same time. We read Revelation chapter 5 and we read the story of how John was looking at things that have not yet happened in heaven and he that sat upon the throne held that book in his hand and they began searching through all of heaven, then through the earth, and under the earth, and in the earth, and in the oceans. They searched the entire universe. And they couldn't find anyone who could approach the throne and take the book. And John was just overwhelmed, and he began to weep. And no one can take the book. And one of the elders standing beside him I don't know if he elbowed him in the ribs or not, but he just turned around and said, Weep not! 
We haven't lost him. What we're doing is we're making a full and thorough proof that he is the only one worthy to approach the throne and take the book. And before he had finished admonishing John for his humanness and his misunderstanding of the situation, there appeared in the midst of the throne a lamb as if it had been slain. And he took the book out of the hand of him that sat upon the throne. And they sang a song of praise that finishes the end of that thing, uh, the end of that chapter. And it starts out with, Thou art worthy. You see, He is the only begotten of the Father. He is the only one capable of doing the work. He is the only one worthy to be entrusted with the souls of all mankind. And that is why we gather together on Sunday morning. That is why we take this time and time and time and time and time again do we open this book and I try to take verses out of the book because He is the only begotten of the Father. He is what God gave to show us His love for us. But there's a purpose in that gift. The purpose is that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Remember meeting a guy one time and he said, Does it say on or in? And I'm sitting here, what do you mean? Well, I've heard some people say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said, what's the difference? He said, there's a lot of difference. I said, oh, really? Look at verse 15. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 16 says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't make any difference. Don't get caught up in little things. Make sure you're believing in and on the right I am so glad to tell you today, salvation is not in Open Door Bible Baptist Church. We can dunk you in that baptistry until you're well nigh drowned, but it won't get you one bit closer to God. But if you'll believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, He'll give you eternal If you have any questions, verse 16 says everlasting. If you have any questions, verse 15 says eternal. Uh, They mean the same thing. But pastor, what if I decide I don't want it anymore? If you decide you don't want it anymore, you never got it. Because the first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And if you think you're powerful enough, To play games with God and to pick up salvation and cast it aside as easily as that, there's very little hope for you, my friend. The only hope you might have is getting enough of this Word in you to wash that foolishness out of you. You see, I come to God because there's no other place to go. I come to God because He loved me like no other can love. I come to God because it was His love that sent His only begotten Son, the only one worthy, the only one capable, the only one God could entrust with the salvation of mankind. And all God says is believe on Him. You know what makes it so difficult to believe on Him? But shouldn't I go to church? You don't go to church to get saved. Church is for after you get saved. It's the nursery for the newborn baby. It's the place where you should hear how to be saved. But you can't be a part of what goes on here as a member of this church until after you have a living relationship with Jesus Christ. But pastor... I'm not as bad as... Fill in the blank. I'm not as bad as Jeffrey Dahmer or Adolf Hitler. I'm not as bad as the Democrats or the Republicans. I'm not as bad as... Fill in the blank. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter 
your level of sin. It matters what you do with your sin. And the Bible says, I need to bring it to Christ. But doesn't He want me to clean it up a little bit and and be better than I am? No! Wait, wait a minute, preacher. Shouldn't, shouldn't I live a better life since I'm... Yeah, you live a better life after you're saved because God is living in you and changing you. It's His love that makes you different, not your effort. Can we say amen to that? Don't raise your hand, but many people have had to deal with this thing of no matter how much good they've done in their home, they never were accepted as a member of the family. Let me tell you, God's not like that. He doesn't accept you because of what you've done. He accepts you because of who He is. There's a difference. Did it make a lot of sense for Moses to build a fire there in the desert where it was already hot and sandy and get some helpers there to heave that fire up and put the bellows in it so that it would blow hot and he could melt the brass that, that he would have had there in the storehouse of the tabernacle and, and fashion it as a serpent and stick it on a pole and then Take that pole. By the way, it wasn't a little snake that was on a pole. There were two million people in the nation of Israel. Uh, This was a huge thing for people to be able to see it. Anyone in the camp could see this pole. Because that was the only way they were going to survive the story. And Jesus said, just like the Son of Man, just like the snake was lifted up in the wilderness so all Israel could see, that thing had to be 25, 30 feet tall. So that anybody could look that had enough faith, they believed God's Word, and they would be healed. Do you think there were people that didn't look? Oh, yeah. They died. They were buried there in the wilderness, right along with the snakes. It doesn't have to make sense to you. It made sense to God. And so why can't you surrender your sense to God? Is that asking so much? How many of you have ever had to learn something very difficult? Something that is unnatural? maybe playing a musical instrument, trying to work a computer. Uh, Lots of things out there. You know what? Your hands don't want to do what they say. It doesn't make sense. But you learn to do it. And all of a sudden, you can become well accomplished at what you're doing. God says, don't you think I understand a little bit more about love than you do? Do you think I understand a little bit more about holiness and justice and truth and what is wrong and sin than you do? See, God wants whosoever will to be saved. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let me ask you a question. Do you have everlasting life today? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Say amen. Are you not sure about your eternity? That's one of the reasons our church exists. 
to take you and this book. I can't tell you how many people have said over the years, Pastor, I have so many questions. And I always go, I, I have so many answers. Now, you may not like them all, but, but I have the answers. They're right here. And people say, how do you turn through that Bible and, and find a verse that says exactly the answer to my question? Oh, that's easy. God knows you better than you do. That's why you need to believe on Him instead of you. Altogether, we're done. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish, but should have, I'm sorry, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before You today, and Lord, we know and understand there are people in our midst who are still trying to decide this issue of salvation in their lives. Lord, we have people here that are just newly saved. Lord, I pray that the sermon today would give them a little better understanding of the salvation that they possess and the reasons why we need to surrender our life every day to live for you. Lord, we have some people here that have been saved many, many years. And yet they're still struggling with the issues of this life. Lord, we pray that your love would soften their hearts. And that they would surrender to your word and your love in their lives. Lord, we ask you to work in this time of invitation that we may give glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Andrew, come lead us in the hymn of invitation 301, a song we sing often.